Baker Mayfield, undraftable, off my board. The Cleveland Browns select Baker Mayfield. What's up, Browns fans? Welcome into what is now part two of the uh, Browns draft deep dive. I am sorry this took a little longer than I expected, but it's tough to track down schedules and times to record with all of these folks who have difficult, challenging deadlines to meet and have their own lives to lead and jobs to cover for these teams, these players. But hopefully you listened to part one and enjoyed that deep dive as I try to give you a different perspective on these Browns draftees as these guys are in Berea now for rookie minicamp. If you have not been paying attention, all of them have been there. Tony Fields news about his knee came out after I talked to the two folks that we talked to here. So, uh, you know, if you've paid attention, he failed. His, uh, his physical, in terms of being ready to go, needs time to get that knee ready for training camp, so he is not participating, but everybody else is live and in action. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to a bunch of different people. So uh, hopefully, like I said, you went back and listened to part one and paid attention to everybody we talked to, including uh, the last person we talked to was pick 110, which was James Hudson. Uh, we talked about uh, a little bit of his background in Cincinnati. So that starts off now with pick uh, 132, Tommy Togiai. The Browns moved back from pick 113, ended up picking at 132, and took the Ohio State product, who we all know very well. Uh, maybe we don't know him well. You know, he didn't play a ton, didn't have a high volume of of time at Ohio State, so this could be informative for you. And Austin Ward, who is the uh, football reporter for Letterman Row, one of the many uh, sites covering Ohio State football, he is at a Ward Sports on Twitter. Uh, he's been a bunch of different places: Knoxville, New Sentinel, ESPN, Casper Star Tribune. Does a really good job. Follow him on Twitter. Really nice of him to give us an interview here. So let's get over to our interview with Austin. Austin, man, listen, Andrew Barry, I said this earlier when we had on, uh, you know, our guest that was covering Notre Dame. He knows how to attack folks in the fan base. Notre Dame last year brought in Donovan Peoples-Jones from Michigan, going and getting Ohio State players. He's trying to make everybody happy, right, man? Talk to me. Talk to me a little bit about Tommy Togi. I kind of I think, you know, most Browns fans typically are watching Ohio State on Saturdays and they know the name and they know what he looks like and all of that stuff. And they have an yeah. idea of who he is. Trace it back a little bit out of Idaho, right? Like his recruitment, how much of a surprise it was to see a guy come to Ohio State from there. Some of that stuff you have on his background. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. And, and uh, thanks for the question. I mean, Tommy Togia has been one of my favorite guys to cover. He's one of the more quiet guys that you'll, you'll ever encounter. Um, he's just a, he's a, he's a cliche when it comes to the nose to the grindstone, but he's a, he's a physical freak. Uh, obviously you get you know, some of that work ethic, um, out there in small towns in Idaho. And I'm pretty sure that he was the first scholarship player that the Buckeyes ever pursued there. I know it was the first time that Larry Johnson had been out there. Um, Ohio state's famous, uh, defensive line coach. It was kind of late in the process and the recruiting is like uh, Ohio state needed to add another guy to the defensive line that needed a defensive tackle. You know, Tommy Togiai sitting there as a four star and, uh, you know, Larry Johnson and Urban Meyer, I remember the picture they, they posted when they were in his living room. It's like you know, back in those days when you were still able to take those visits, which I'm sure coaches are looking forward to again now, but um, you know, that he was worth the trip for Ohio state. You know, they didn't know if he, they'd be able to swing and, and get somebody to move so far away. But 
the, the chance for Tommy Togiai to take that raw, raw uh, strength and power uh, and wanted to get coached by Larry Johnson and be pushed by Urban Meyer in that Ohio State program wound up being appealing to him. And, you know, you see the, the fruits of that labor now a couple years down the road. Yeah, he comes in early. Who, who's he sitting behind? He didn't play much his freshman year, I don't believe. You can correct me on this stuff. This is me right. just going off memory. Who's he <laughs> sitting behind? And then ultimately he gets some snaps sophomore, junior year, but he battled a little bit of COVID issue this past year yeah. too. Am I right about that? He did, yeah. He missed the title game with COVID. And, uh, you know, he's, he's had some nagging injuries. I believe there was a foot at one point. And, and then Ohio State, you know, was very talented. You look at, you know, the, uh, his sophomore year, Devon Hamilton was emerging into – uh, a game-changing weapon, uh, a draft pick in his own right. Yet, you know, Jay Sean Cornell in there at uh, at the three technique the year before. And, you know, there just wasn't a tremendous need for Ohio State. You know, for and this is this is a tribute to the program for the Buckeyes that they don't need these guys to come in as as true freshmen, even when they're four stars. Even when you know the famous story about Togi is that he got in there, um, you know, as a true freshman and enrolled and. Older, older Buckeyes were saying this guy's the strongest guy on the team, which you have three, four, three, four or five-year veterans who've been working with Mickey Marotti saying that this guy showed up ready to, you know, crank out, you know, 225, you know, pound bench reps. So he wound up doing that 40 times on his pro day. I'm not sure that that was how many he did as a freshman, but that was the kind of guy who, who showed up there. And so th- there were some NFL guys in there, Draymond Jones the year before, um, you know, just trying to, you know, think back of everyone who, has come through that defensive line, Robert Landers, who uh, hasn't had his, he's worked out for the Browns, but he hasn't, you know, he had, he got kind of stuck in that COVID year where he wasn't able to get in for some uh, workouts last year, but the NFL guys, veteran guys that were ahead of him. So he was able to bide his time. And I think, you know, what Larry Johnson was trying to get out of him was, you know, finding a way to uh, enhance his toolbox that he calls it with the, you know, pass rush moves or, the technique that he needed to use in the trenches because the power was always going to be there. He's also a little bit underrated, I think, in his mobility. That was something that I talked to Tommy, uh, I guess it was about a month ago at this time. What did you want to prove at Pro Day that people don't know about you? And it's he's got a really famous clip. I'm sure you've probably seen it, Jake, running down a tackle from the middle of the field to the sideline against Northwestern a couple of years ago. He can yeah. move. He, he is a very athletic uh, defensive tackle. So, uh, you know, that's – that's a situation where Ohio State has a bunch of guys. This has been a, a trend where they really only need one year as a starter or, or two years maybe. When Larry Johnson gets them ready, they're, they tend to be NFL products, even if they haven't played three, four years of, of regular action for the Buckeyes. Yeah, it's a, the thing that struck me particularly is the underrated athleticism. Not only that highlight, but like the way he's able to absorb contact and kind of stay. He's the thing that people look at I think where they're drawing their eyes are to him most often is the Clemson game where he's the you know he puts on a show in that game and I thought what stood out to me is a guy you know I think maybe 500 just over 500 snaps in college you are still working with a raw prospect but the ability to take on double teams which is something that Cleveland is desperately needed is is soaking up double teams but not just being sort of a a magnet and allowing that, but also being still a player that can absorb that contact and feel right when the peel happens to the second level and split and take advantage of that. So that is something that drew my eye. And I think that that's something that Ohio state probably was starting to really appreciate and definitely could have used when they ran into Alabama. That's what I think. I think it's an underrated part of that game. It's him not being able to participate in it from a, from a middle of the 
defensive line perspective. Go ahead. Yeah, it changed a lot. I mean, as you said, in that Clemson game was one of the finest of his career. The impact was undeniable that he was having in there, uh, pushing the pocket uh, into the feet of Trevor Lawrence. And, you know, it's a great one-two punch that Ohio State had with him and Haskell Garrett. And they, they were crossing their fingers and hoping to get both of them back for next year. You saw with, with Tommy sliding a little bit that there were probably, you know, some concerns for other franchises about whether he was, you know, a finished finish product ready for that next level. I, I don't know. He could have certainly, I think, boosted his draft stock with more individual production next year for Ohio State, but it goes back to what I was talking about with him when he showed up as a freshman. The physical part of it has never been a question. Tommy Togiai has always had that ability. He's always had the power. He's always had that uh, drive and that motor to go make other plays, you know, from, from to the sideline if he needs to. So that part of it, you know, that's why I think the Browns got maybe good value here um, because, you know, this guy, when you look at the way he measures, you know, physically and the strength and the bench press and all that other stuff, the, the, the leaping ability, even for somebody his size, it's uncommon. And, um, you know, one more year of production would have made it almost impossible to get this guy outside of the first or second round, in my opinion. But again, you know more about those guys you know, translating to the next level. I just see him all the time uh, and watch all of his games. And he looked every bit the part of an NFL defensive tackle to me. Yeah, I think I, you're spot on. First of all, the production, I think the limited number of snaps gave some people pause. And I, and I, and I you know, from the NFL's perspective, they're always looking at market share production and how much experience a guy brings in. And there's a level to which I think people were concerned about that. And they'll always kind of give pause. But the way that Clemson game shook out to me, I was like, there's some traits here that people should be really, really loving because, you know, several of those just natural field plays too. As a defensive tackle, you can get kind of spun around or, you know, so maybe you're taking on as a three tech, you're taking the guard kind of driving down the gap down the backside. And maybe he doesn't feel somebody pulling or sorry, crashing down on his inside. And like the unexpected hits happen. And a couple of times I saw that where he didn't necessarily see a double team coming or anchor it, but he was able to still make a play spin move. Like some of those innate things, uh, that I think the Browns eye were, were drawn to. And, and if he goes back and has an eight, nine, 10 sack season, and then he probably is a first late first, second round guy in the Barmore type of range from this year. So Ohio state, uh, well, I should say Cleveland uh, is able to benefit from that. Ohio state doesn't benefit from it, but Cleveland does benefit in that regard. And, and, and to me, it's just, a guy with that kind of sheer strength and the ability to do some things that he's flashed. Can he put those together consistently? He was definitely in that tier two group for me. If you got past, you know, sort mm -hmm. of the first guys in this class, the Barmore, uh, the, the Ali McNeil types that he, he was the one that caught my eye. I was really impressed that they were able to, to make that connection. Shit, awesome. Because I'm so often I'm wrong. I, I feel like I have the ultimate <laughs> jinx where this draft was weird though, man. Like we love Newsom. We love JOK. We loved, uh, we, we certainly talked to on all of our, you know, YouTube pre videos. And we talked to uh, uh, Anthony Schwartz too. James Hudson caught us by surprise. And at the end of the draft, it's just a roll the dice thing, but yeah, we, we like him. So I, I'll ask you two more questions. These are, yeah. these are ones that I think I've tried to touch with everybody on these guys is you covered him, you interviewed him, you got close and, and had discussions I'm sure here and there. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is he a guy from your viewing spring practices or viewing weekly practices, whatever you guys are allowed to get in to see in the locker room? Is he a pretty respected guy? I mean, sometimes I've talked, you know, like Juliana Usukormo was more of an outspoken type. Greg Newsom was outspoken where James Hudson's introverted type of guy doesn't say much, but demands that kind of quiet respect. I think you're, you kind of alluded to this earlier with Tommy. Was he, was he a quiet guy that got respect or was he just, sometimes it's okay to just be a part of the group and not really be noticed, you know? Yeah. Tommy, Tommy never uh, wanted the attention on himself and, and he was very, uh, very shy. I don't know that I would, it doesn't, introvert doesn't really strike me as the way to describe him because he he's really quick. Uh, you know, he's got a good sense of humor. You talk to him in some different settings other than the press conferences, you know, he'll joke, he's quick to smile. Uh, he's not somebody who is, uh, you know, all business and, uh, you know, a, you know, I don't know, a meathead grinder only worried about trying to get those bench reps up. That's not, that's not Tommy. The one that I've covered or got to know, he, he's just, he, he, he's not truly comfortable, I think, being that outspoken guy or, and he never tried to be one of the leaders of that Ohio State defensive line. And, and he didn't have to be because of some of those other people that I mentioned, um, you know, whether that's, you know, Jonathan Cooper this year or, or going back to when he was much younger and some of those, you know, four or five uh, NFL defensive ends that were helping set the tone. I mean, he's been surrounded by, uh, you know, Chase Young's and, and guys who, who want that spotlight are comfortable leading the way. Uh, and Tommy can take that uh, instruction and is very well respected because the, the work ethic can't really be beat. Uh, the guy loves football. And, you know, he'd play through injuries uh, when he could. Obviously, he wasn't able to, you know, uh, the situation that happened with the national title game. There's nothing he could do about that. Um, there was a part of me that, you know, and the rest of the program, when you're asking like, well, will that impact your decision to come back? And, and just cause a lot of guys want to win a national title, people that have been at Ohio state and to be that close and have that taken away from him. I mean, and he was honest, you know, it hurt and he cried and he admitted that part, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, somebody with that lumberjack strength, you don't picture him really doing that, but he's got, you know, that a passion for the game. I think that that's really what, how that spilled over there. So um, not going to be somebody in Cleveland that I think, fills up uh, sound bites and, and wants the TV cameras on him a lot. That's never been his thing, but you won't ever question. I think what the, you know, the, the work that he gets work that he'll put in for his paycheck on a weekend week out basis. Well, I usually ask everybody, Austin, like how you would sell me on him, you know, <laughs> as a scout, but I think you just hammered it right there, man. That was, that was perfect. And a good mixture of tape and your thoughts on him and being close to him as personality. And I think Browns fans learn a lot from this and, and uh, when they see him talk live in media sessions, they'll already kind of know a little bit about him. So he's he's Austin Ward, guys. He covers Ohio State for Letterman Row. He does fantastic work. We followed each other for a significant amount of time. And, and, and you guys who are, um, you know, most of you listen to this are probably Ohio State fans. Make sure you are following him if you are not. He is at A Ward Sports on Twitter. So, uh, Austin, thanks, man. Thanks for taking time on short notice. No problem. Appreciate you having me. The Browns are excited about what Togi I can bring to the interior of their defensive line, uh, especially being a guy as strong as he is. So thanks again to Austin for some really good insights on that player and the person Tommy is. Unique story out of Idaho. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I think he'll be a, a fun player to cover, uh, and I think he's got a bright future with the Browns. Don't say that lightly. You know, you can say about every draft pick, but I, I do think there is there's something real there. I think there's something that's going to be tapped into, and I'm excited about that. So uh, we're going to shift over now to Tony Fields. Browns drafted Tony, pick one. 
Uh, I think it was. Let's check here. Pick 153 for Tony Fields. A, a pretty big surprise for me personally. After the JOK pick, I did not expect them to... Uh, go out and keep adding at linebacker, but they did. Tony Fields, a different player, played some Will at Arizona, played more Mike in his one year at West Virginia. We're going to talk about him. I just wrote a film room on him last week for you subscribers to go check out. You can see more of his highlight clips and some of the different things he was able to do throughout his college career, what he excels at, where he struggles at. He's an interesting guy, interesting prospect, interesting story starting out at Arizona. So I want to get perspectives from both Arizona and uh, West Virginia as well. So we will do that. We're going to first be joined by Matt Moreno, who is at Matt Go AZ Cats on Twitter. Uh, he writes for uh, GoAZCats.com, which is a part of Rivals.com Network and Yahoo. And he has some good insights covering him for three years because, yeah, Tony Kim comes out of West Virginia where he spent his final year, but he had three years at Arizona where he established himself as a player. So let's get over to our interview with Matt right now and, and learn as much as we can about his time at Arizona with Tony Fields. Matt, I think it's great with Tony and especially the situation that he arrives, you know, to the NFL draft through through West Virginia, but I think a lot of people don't understand a majority of his college story was told at Arizona, where he spent his first three years and was an immediate player for the university, right? Like talk about his arrival through recruiting and sort of where he was when he was playing pretty early in his Arizona career. Yeah, I mean, obviously with him, uh the one of the things that you kind of noticed as he was a, a recruit, was uh, there were some pretty big schools involved, but a lot of those programs uh, wanted him to play safety. They kind of viewed him as someone who was going to be a better fit at the safety position. I think he felt like he was more of a linebacker and it fit him better, fit his skill set better, fit his size a little bit better um, than necessarily playing the safety role. And, and Arizona was one of those places that said, hey, we'll take you. We like your talent. Uh, we like what you're able to do. And um, and we'll take you as a linebacker. And so I think that really appealed to him. I think there were some other options that he was looking at, um, but the opportunity to, to play early at Arizona, uh, to play a position that he felt like he fit in better, I think kind of won out. Um, and Arizona had a need for linebackers at that time, and I was going through a bit of a, a defensive transition and really needed somebody who could step up. And he, along with uh, another freshman that year, Colin Schooler, came in and really stepped in and, and made a, a big improvement, made a big impact, and um, – through his career at Arizona, Tony Fields was kind of overlooked a little bit just because of the numbers that Colin Schooler was putting up. He was putting up some insane numbers. But if you took that out of the equation, he said Tony Fields just by himself is a very, very good college football player, a very good college linebacker. He was putting up some insane stats himself. And so uh, he stepped right in. It was very seamless coming from the high school level and, and playing in Las Vegas uh, to stepping in at, at Arizona at a Pac-12 program and being a, an immediate impact player. And so I think um, he naturally just fit in very well. He kind of took on a leadership role, even as a young player, and, and really uh, emerged as a key part of that defense for Arizona. I know um, there were definitely some sad and disappointed fans and, and, and sad and disappointed players when he decided to leave. But I think when you looked at his situation and what was best for him as an individual player, I feel like he kind of felt he gave Arizona everything he could. Uh, they were not in a great situation um, in terms of going into last season. I think everyone kind of saw the ride down the wall that it was going to be a difficult year and not put a player like Tony Fields in the position to get to the point that he was able to get at West Virginia, where he was, you know, more in the spotlight playing for a very good defense and being a key part of a very good defense. And so um, I think a lot of people around the program understood where he was coming from in his decision. I think it was a difficult one for him as well, um, but ultimately it kind of worked out for everyone involved. So, yeah, I think that decision is something that's interesting to me. I, I know that Arizona is going through some tough transitional times in the football program and, and, and he was, 
but he was a good player for them. I mean, I mean, as far as you know, it takes twenty-two you know active participants at any one time to put out a good product. But I thought he was effective for them. So, like, was he? I'm curious. I mean, we know he could play a little bit, especially arriving his freshman year, where he has four sacks and and uh, is a, is a game changing player. Is was he a guy who, as the process wore on, you know, those three years, was he a vocal leader? Was he somebody they put out in front of the program to be that guy who could be the voice during tough times, that he could be a leader to kind of try to get things turned around in the right direction? And then I, I know you're talking about the transfer, and, and I think there was a cancellation of spring practices, and he wanted to kind of move on. Uh, I, I don't think that that's all too uncommon. But I'm just kind of curious the, the type of person Tony is, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think he kind of became the, spokes, the spokesperson for the defense in a lot of ways. I mentioned Colin, Colin Schooler. He was a little bit more of a quiet guy, more reserved. Where Tony was kind of a vocal guy. He had a really good personality. Even going back to when I knew him as a high school player and was watching him as a prospect before he even picked Arizona, uh, he was he was always he always had a good personality, a good head on his shoulders. Uh, comes from a very good family situation and um, just kind of brought that with him when he came to Arizona and. Like I said, he was a leader from the very early stages of his career at Arizona, um, and that only grew as, as time went on. He really, like I said, became that spokesperson for the defense. I think if you asked any average Arizona fan, you know, to name one of its you know top three or four best players on the team and representatives of the team, his name would be part of that group. He was someone who is kind of uh, off the field personality persona, kind of match what he was on the field in terms of just being a leader and being someone the face of one of the faces of the program, and so. Um, I think he really uh, continued to grow that and develop that as he went along. I think by the time he got to his junior year and right before uh, he decided to end up leaving, uh, he was kind of the guy that the media turned to. And, and whenever there was a loss or a certain situation that you needed a veteran guy to talk about and, um, you know, be that person to stand up and uh, relay what was going on with the team to, you know, the, the public, he was that guy. And, and uh, he was always well-spoken and, and very articulate about what he was able to do and translate things that were going on in the field to kind of the media and people who are not part of the everyday uh, kind of practices and seen there in, at Arizona. So um, he was definitely someone that I think the media always kind of gravitated toward because uh, he was more of a straight shooter. He was going to tell you kind of what was going on and, you know, what issues are going on and he wasn't going to sugarcoat a lot of things. And uh, the media always respects that, I think. And, and so um, he definitely was someone that, uh, like I said, grew into that spokesperson for the defense in a lot of ways and really took pride in that, I think, um, in, in terms of just being that ro- being in that role and being that person for the defense. He didn't mind, you know, having that on his shoulders and being, you know, the person who uh, everyone was going to turn to when things went right, when things went wrong. I think he really gravitated toward that role and embraced it. It's caught my eye, too, and a lot of the things I read about him, a lot of things from his transfer and stuff like that, were, were that he still loves Arizona, still loves the school, loves everything about him, loves loves his time spent there. Was the transfer really just a situation that he thought that the Pac-12 wasn't going to play football this year and he wanted to ensure that he was? Yeah, I think that played a really big part of it. I think uh, there were a couple guys that, that really were unsure. I mean, there was a time where it really felt that way, that, that you know the Pac-12 wasn't going to be playing football until the spring. If you're in a position like he is, you want to get that season in, knowing that hey, maybe the draft isn't going to move and isn't going to shift if you know all these leagues decide that they're they're not going to not going to play or they are going to play. And so there was a lot of just indecision and uncertainty about what to expect. And I think he wanted the most consistent situation. And so um, I think that was a big part of it. Like I said, the transition with the defense, um, it was just a difficult time for the defense as a whole. They brought in a new defensive coordinator. Uh, they're going to be changing the scheme a little bit. So there were a lot of things that you could see how it can be an easy decision to make. I think um, 
for a lot of the fans, I think he, you got you got that sense from him him as well, where it was you know difficult to leave and to say goodbye to Arizona. And for fans, obviously they liked having him around. They enjoyed the production that he brought. They enjoyed watching him play, and uh, you know how impactful of a player he was for Arizona. But I think when everyone took a step back, they said, "Okay, we understand it." And I think that was the same vibe you got from him as well. Is you know this is maybe not the decision I want to make, but this is the one I have to make for my own future. And there was just so much uncertainty at that time when he made that decision. Maybe if he waits a little bit longer, um, you know, the Pac-12 comes around and ends up playing a fall season, a shortened fall season. Maybe that decision doesn't happen. But um, I think for him at that time, it was very easy to see that, hey, this is a decision that has to be made just because there was so much uncertainty with the Pac-12 at that time and whether or not they're going to have a season at all, if it was going to be a shortened season, if it was going to be in the spring, what was going on. So I think, just finding some continuity, finding something that was, you know, more cemented uh, for him in terms of a fall season and having an opportunity to play as early as he could and stay within the typical time frame that you see, you know, season, every season, uh, I think was important and it ended up working out for him. But I think there was definitely a, a, a bit of everybody involved where it felt like, oh, this is disappointing to see this happen. But I think everyone understood, you know, this is the, the reality of the situation. And for him, you know, it made sense to, to move on. So yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, Matt, the transfer works out pretty well for him. He's a Big Twelve Defensive Newcomer of the Year. He's a Big Twelve First Team player. He, you know, he's he's a, the All American uh, first teamer at the Senior Bowl. It works out pretty well for him. So explain to me if you can, kind of like what I always ask everybody this question when I interview them, kind of at the end. What about Tony Fields from your time covering him? How does he make it in the league? The Browns obviously valued him in an important position, you know, for, I guess the linebacker position is not important for them, but they took Jeremiah Wusukoromoa early in the draft and they felt so good about Tony Fields that they ended up taking him anyway. So what, what, what helps him last in the NFL in your opinion? Like what's the sticking part of his game? I think for me, it was that there was constant progression. You could always say every time he came back at the end of the season, you could say he got a little bit better in certain areas. I, I think you could see him making constant improvements. And obviously you want to continue to do that when you're trying to catch on with an NFL roster and, and have a successful NFL career, you want to continue that progression. And I think when you look at what he did, you know, from his freshman season, yes, the numbers were a little bit different and maybe even a little bit better. He was able to make more of an impact early on in his career. But I think in terms of his skill set and just pure improvement, he was a better player when he left Arizona than when he arrived. And so um, I think you saw that progression continue at West Virginia. And so I think that's going to be what's on his side. I, I think he understands the game very well. Um, he went through a lot of different transitions with different coaches and playing for, uh, you know, different people and, and taking insight from different coaches. And so he worked through that and always continued to improve. Some players didn't at Arizona. Some players, they regressed when the new coaches came on board. And there was a lot of transitional changes with Arizona staff during the time that, that Tony was you know, on campus on the team. And, and he worked through that. He didn't let that kind of deter him from making improvements and progressing as a player. And so I think for him, he has the right demeanor, the right mindset. Um, he's very kind of goal oriented and understands what he wants. And I think that will be a benefit to him as well. But just the constant progression is something that stands out to me about looking at his Arizona career and um, where he was able to make strides and how much he was, able to make a bigger impact, even if a little bit every other season that he came out uh, and was part of that defense. This has been great, Matt. We really appreciate it. Browns fans getting to know these draftees a bit more, and I, I especially wanted to talk to somebody who who understood the, the situation between Arizona and West Virginia a little bit more, and this has been great. Make sure you guys are following Matt if you would like some more information on Tony or like some more information on uh, anything Arizona. At Matt, uh, go, Cat, go AZ Cats on Twitter, and, and make sure you check out 
uh, goazcats.com as well. Matt, thanks for taking taking a little bit of time, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay, and now we switch over to uh, Chris Anderson, who is the publisher of ER Sports, which is, I think it's pronounced Ear Sports there for Mountaineers, which is the West Virginia site here on 247 Sports Network, where we are at at the OBR. So I wanted to get a West Virginia impression. I know they only spent a year with him, didn't get a ton of time uh, talking to the player, getting to know him, but that's okay. You you want to see especially the impact that Tony made on, on West Virginia, where he was the Big 12 Newcomer of the Year and some other interesting uh, interesting awards that came with his time there. So uh, we're going to talk to Chris about his one year at West Virginia and see what he learned about Tony Fields before he arrives here in Cleveland. All right, Chris, I'm excited to talk about Tony Fields because I think the Browns spent time with Tony, um, but 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 I don't think many people thought it was going to be a player that they would select because they took a guy we talked about earlier, Jeremiah Wusukoromoa from Notre Dame, who people view as a linebacker. But I see Tony doing some different things for Cleveland than Jeremiah will do necessarily. So it's it's interesting with him because he had three pretty good years at Arizona and arrives to West Virginia where you cover, and, and it's like, I guess my question is, because I know off air, we talked about you didn't get a ton of time with him or, you know, normal year, you'd probably get a a ton of chances to one-on-one talk with him or have him in interviews, whatever. But this weird past season, it's understandable that you wouldn't get that time. So what I'm looking for, Chris, is kind of what the hype was surrounding him when he came into West Virginia and then sort of what you saw on the field and how it translated. I think when he committed to West Virginia in the summer, right before, uh, I, I mean, it was late. I think he committed the same day. I believe that West Virginia was reporting for fall camp or started fall camp. And, but when it happened, that was such a glaring hole for West Virginia's team that I, I declared it, you know, the biggest, the biggest acquisition for West Virginia of the year, maybe in several years, probably since Will Greer as quarterback, just because quarterback so important. And he arrived and wasted no time, you know, backing me up, making me feel like, uh, I might, I might know what I'm talking about because he, he looks fantastic. The moment he got to Morgantown, uh, the very first game he played, you know, since he arrived so late and he was competing against a senior that he didn't quote unquote start the first game. Uh, again, I think that was just out of respect for the other player, but he played 25 snaps and had 10 tackles, which I, it, it was hard for me to wrap my head around at the time. And then once we saw how good this West Virginia defense was as a whole, uh, you know, I think for a lot of the year it was ranked number top 10, but uh, number one at times in total defense. And he was in there for 25 snaps and had 10 tackles, even with all those other defensive players, which is just astonishing when you think about it. Yeah, it really is. I mean, especially, you know, I would imagine limited prep time and all that stuff. We should be remiss if we didn't talk about him. He's the Big 12 defensive newcomer of the year, um, you know, all Big 12 pick and, and then went to the Senior Bowl. Uh, the Reese's senior boy was a first team all American for them uh, for how that they structure out, you know, out of senior awards. So uh, obviously a player who proved a lot in his time, at, at just a short brief stint at West Virginia. Did you get a feel, maybe you got this feel from coaches perhaps, or uh, in talking to anybody about him coming in or whatnot, just kind of his personality maybe, or, or kind of uh, how teammates felt about him or, or if he was viewed as a lead, it's tough to come into a situation for one year and, and play, especially non quarter like you said, non quarterback situations and get your teammates to buy into you and your coaching staff to buy into you. Was there any issue with that? You know, it seems like it was a relatively seamless transition, but I, I'm just curious if there was any buzz about, Hey, we love Tony. We love what he's doing. That kind of thing. They couldn't keep him off the field, obviously. No, it, it's, it's funny you bring that up. It, it, 
according to head coach Neil Brown, uh, it was the exact opposite. It was one of the things that they talked about when they were recruiting him, uh, when as, as far as the transfer goes, saying, hey, we need a linebacker, period. We need somebody that can start. We need somebody that can get a bunch of tackles. But we also need a leader. We've got a young defense, a very young defense, and we need a leader. And, you know, you've been a multi-year start at Arizona. We need you to step right in and be a leader. And, and West Virginia had an inside man, so to speak, because of Jamil Adai, who was Tony Fields' lead recruiter at Arizona, but last year came to West Virginia to be a secondary coach. That was the big connection there that ultimately led Fields to West Virginia. And Adai told the coaching staff, this guy was a leader at Arizona. And he led, he led the team by example, by talking to him, uh, just being one of those guys even when he was younger. So they went into it while they're recruiting him saying, we need you to be more than a football player. We need you to be a leader. And when the season was over, Neil Brown could not have been more complimentary about the job that he did doing just that. That's fantastic to hear. And I think the little bit about it would be, you know, question I ask everybody since, you know, you only got one year covering him, but you could still sell me. Like if I was a scout in the NFL draft coming to you and saying, you know, what, what does Tony Fields, what can his one year at West Virginia tell me about Tony so that I feel good about drafting that player? So what would you kind of give as a synopsis to Browns fans about what they're getting in this guy? I mean, the biggest, I think, that kind of touched on it with the, the previous two points in that, one, he's ready to be a leader. He's ready to buy into anything and everything you're doing because he came to West Virginia cold. He had no other connections other than Jamil Adai, one, one assistant coach that didn't even coach his position who recruited him to his previous school and had already been at another school between that because Adai went from Arizona to Minnesota to West Virginia. So it wasn't like it had just happened. It was a couple years removed. So he, he came in cold and completely bought in and did everything that was needed and asked of him. That was huge. Uh, to just friggin' making plays. Like, he just – I think if you want to knock him for one thing or you want to wonder about some things, you, you wonder about if he can stay on the scheme. It was a couple of things that Neil Brown talked about, kind of keeping him on the rails is what they would say, trying to make sure he stayed in gaps, certain gaps depending on what was called. But – you watch him play. If you can hone that down, if you can get him to understand the scheme a little better, stay in the scheme a little better, he could be something special because even when he was out of position, he was still beating other guys on the team to make the play. He would still make up for it. Half the time, the casual fan doesn't even know that he's out of position because he's so daggone talented and athletic that and instinctive that he made the play anyway. So it didn't matter at least as far as, you know, the end result of the play. It's a lot of what Browns fans are loving to hear because they need more from the linebacker position. And I know they're excited about Owusu Koromo, and I think that under the radar they should be excited about Tony Fields because those of you who watched him week in and week out, and you're not the only person I have heard this from, Chris, is that exact sentiment about instincts and the ability to overcome uh, maybe – not overcome the right word, but use those instincts, which might be a little bit out of what he's asked to do, but ultimately makes the right play and has the best uh, the best end goal for the team in mind. So I'm pretty pumped about him. He is Chris Anderson. He's at CM Anderson 247, where he runs the West Virginia side as the publisher on the uh, 247 Sports Network here with us. So uh, I could not thank you more, Chris. I know we had to do this kind of hastily, and I know you didn't really get to spend as much time as you would have loved to have spent with Tony, but this was these are really great insights, and I hope uh, I hope our fan base checks you out, follows you for more insights. And, uh, again, we appreciate it, man. 
Yeah, looking forward to following Tony and his time in Cleveland, especially especially as a guy. Uh, you're talking to my, me. I lived in Cleveland Heights for several years, and then my coworker Mike Casaza, huge Cleveland fan. So uh, you'll definitely have the both of us following along with you. Hey, we use all the positive vibes we can get up here. See so if we can repeat <laughs> the magic of last year. Thanks again, Chris. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So really interesting stuff on Tony Fields, uh, the story of his transfer, the story that brought him uh, first to Arizona, then the performance over three years, and then the the story where his back's up against the wall about whether he can play or not and where he ends up going West Virginia. And I wrote in his film room, it was especially interesting to see what he learned about going off on his own, you know, being a, a guy who'd only been on the West Coast uh, throughout his life and getting away from, from, from everything and going up to central part of the, you know, the Midwest was a big growing experience for him. So I found that to be really interesting when he was interviewed by Browns Media the first time there is to talk about how he grew as a person in that one year and how that can ultimately help him and, uh, you know, help him in the NFL. And, uh, you know, the big part of why he's in Cleveland, uh, feeling comfortable about arriving in Cleveland, is the fact that he went out and took a risk and left for West Virginia as he did. So fun stuff. And we're going to switch over now to what is probably my favorite interview of all of these, talking about Richie LeCount. And honestly, I should be careful calling him Richie. He goes by Richard. Uh, I guess you get to know him, probably goes by Richie, but whatever. Uh, I just want to make sure I'm covering. After the Francisco Lindor thing, I want to make sure I'm saying the right name there. So Jeff Santel knows him. He calls him Richie. Obviously spent a lot of time around him. Dog Nation is who he does You know all of the of the recruiting stuff. He's got great insights, such fun stories as a part of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And this is probably my favorite one. I had a ton of fun talking to Jeff. He's at Jeff Sintel on Twitter. Make sure you follow him. He's a really interesting guy and great stories on Richard LeCount and all of his background and friends. So let's get over that interview now. Jeff, we, we in Cleveland, man, we, we love Georgia products because, you know, the, the, the correlation with Nick Chubb, Nick Chubb is, has been fantastic for the Browns. And, and when, they, when they drafted Richard LeCount, they, they did a lot of things in the draft that I think people expected. Uh, a lot of names they've been connected to because of guardrails they have for age and testing and all of that stuff. But I would say the first pick where I was like, I had no real thought that Richard was on the, on the, on the board for them was the, the, the pick of which Richard went uh, pick five, around five, pick 169. And people got off on the wrong foot because you start sharing some testing data about him and the, the testing is wrong. We'll talk about the testing and where that went. Cause he's a way better athlete than what that was from, from a pro day. And we'll get there. But, 
I like tracking this thing from when these guys arrived. He was a big name when he arrived at Georgia from everything I gather. I know you know, and I want to ask you. He's an Army All-American player. He's a five-star guy. Is there any fun stuff around his recruitment and his arrival in Athens? Well, I guess I would, I would call Richard, and uh, first of all, man, Jacob, thanks for having me on. But um, I would call Richard the founder of the recruiting feast at Georgia because uh, Richard's recruiting is very interesting. His, his lifelong childhood friend, Raekwon McMillan, uh, went to Ohio State, and uh, he always liked Ohio State a great deal. And he also liked Alabama a great deal. Uh, he liked Alabama a great deal basically because of Kirby Smart. Uh, great relationship there. But then he also had this really huge tie to he's always felt that uh, Georgia boys should stay home in Georgia and play for Georgia. So he was really torn through th- those kind of three options. But then when Kirby Smart took the job at Georgia, uh, all of a sudden it aligned with what he was looking for. He would get that championship level coaching and um, the pedigree that Alabama had already built with its brand, but he would get to do it in his home state. And uh, I think I, Richard LeCount will go uh, down in history. He was the first uh, first commitment for Kirby Smart once he became the Georgia coach. And it was probably almost instant, but it took about maybe a matter of a week before he, he basically revealed it publicly that he wanted to go to Georgia to play for Kirby Smart. Uh, the side road of that is I think Georgia has picked up, I think, 26 or 27 five-stars now after Richard LeCount back in, uh, gosh, this was in December of 2015. Uh, and, and, you know, Richie's a guy that uh, is such a brilliant athlete. And I think that's kind of funny how everybody, you know, if you just judge this kid, uh, this young man, excuse me, by it's 40 times, you're going to be, you're not going to get the whole picture on this. Cause like, you know, Richard is a guy that um, I remember him so many stories. Like number one, uh, he was at the Under Armour, all, he was at the all American camps back when there was an, a Nike opening Um and they went to the national finals out in Beaverton, Oregon, when they still had it at Nike headquarters. And he was on a team full of athletic dudes, a lot of Georgia guys, a lot of Ohio State guys. And Richie was a guy, I think he had like four or five interceptions in a camp. And uh, he would, he would be, he would kind of be the instigator that would, he, like after he'd make a big play, he'd like backflip like four or five times <laughs> uh, running across the field. Uh, perhaps the chief athletic story I can tell you about uh, Mr. LeCount is not many people know this, especially now, but he was um, he was a really great basketball player in high school. In fact, the state championship uh, basketball player in high school. And, you know, everybody knows the star at Baylor that, um, you know, won the national championship this year. Well, that's a lifelong friend. Uh, Mr. Mitchell is a lifelong friend of Richard LeCount. And those guys were in the same backcourt. And I remember um, the state championship game, and this was Richard's uh, – he enrolled early, so this was his junior – season um because he already at georgia by the time his senior class was playing high school basketball as seniors um for liberty county in hinesville and uh you know richard was richard was going up against like a prospect now i believe his name is jordan walker and he was a five-star basketball player and uh richie just kind of took it upon himself that he was going to guard him and shadow him all night and he gave up he gave up like three or four inches to the five-star um, I think Richie got 20 or 22 points on him. I think he held him to like 15 points, 15 to 18, had a brilliant game. And that was just Richard playing basketball. Um, I've got to let your audience know a couple of really amazing stories about, about Richard. First of all, um, you see him play, and I know you'll just dive deep into the film when you grind that tape. Uh, he's kind of a paradox. 
he's a guy that will bring the wood. He will be a devastating hitter. Um, early in his Georgia career, he had to be, he had to be cautioned and trained against, you know, falling for the rat poison, like being too aggressive, but uh, his game has two disciplines. It's a, it's a lot of physicality and a lot of aggressive play as a safety uh, in the S in the SEC, which I would consider to be the, the toughest conference in the land. But he also had that speed and athleticism dynamic. Cue that basketball story. Cue that um, what he did, what he did with all the backflips. Uh, but Richie's a kid. Like some of my favorite stories is um, number one. Um, he was like driving and he's, he grew up in a very small, small town of Riceboro. And I think population is like maybe 500, 600 people at the last census. And as early as like nine or 10 years old, he would want to go play at the basketball courts. He'd want to have fun at all times. So Richard LeCount was like driving around in his by himself at like nine or 10 years of age. And then like the local law must've knew him and they knew he, he was only driving like a mile or a mile and a half to go to the playground. But, but like Richard was driving. That's one of those interesting stories about uh, Mr. LeCount. Um, another one about Richard is, um, you know, he was born on 9-11. He was born on September 11th. And uh, he lives in a uh, very military, uh, a military enriched community. There's an army airfield. There's an army base all real close to where he grew up. And for the longest time when Richard was growing up, his family, which shows you how, how much great and salt of the earth people the LeCounts are, um, his family would not celebrate his birthday on September 11th. They'd like wait to the next weekend or they'd, they'd wait till the pre- or they'd do it the previous weekend for like this big celebration, whether it's at a picnic or at a park, because they thought that was a really sad day for our country. And it wasn't a day to be celebrating for the longest time when he was younger. Um, that's, that's really just a snapshot into kind of who Richie is and that, where he comes from. That's so much fantastic stuff, especially the connections that we did. I mean, you know, I followed Ohio State up here living in Columbus as I do, and I had no clue him and Raekwon McMillan or, or were that connected. Just that, And that could be me overlooking it or whatever. I mean, Ohio State has started to pull some kids, Von Bell, uh, Harry Miller, all the way back, Cam Hayward a long time ago. Like they've started to trickle into Georgia, and it is. And obviously we know that, that Ohio State was lucky enough to have Justin Fields move up this way, but Georgia is – is taken off talent wise. I mean, you would, you would agree. And that's kind of been the translation to a lot of Georgia's success, right? Yeah. And I, I think the, the thing, you know, about Raekwon is those guys grew up together. They're from the same community. Um, and, you know, like even in the off season when uh, Raekwon was with the dolphins and in the Raiders, Richie would spend a lot of his time training with him or just hanging out with him in the summer. In fact, uh, uh, another really cool Richie, Richie story is like, He's just a guy, and I think in, in high school he was probably 5'11 and 175 or 180, but I'm just going to call him an alpha. I, I've been in so many rooms where Richard is surrounded by other great players, and some of these guys are 6'5", 280, um, 6'2", 225, chiseled, rocked-out guys. And yet, yet Richie is a guy that when um, he has something to say, the whole room quiets down. And when he has something to say, most people gravitate to his opinion. He's very charismatic. He's very fun. Um, I remember uh, there were areas at the opening where reporters couldn't get to. So we would just hand Richie a camera and he would take pictures of everybody hanging out or partying or just wilding out or just working out uh, behind the scenes. And then he'd bring our cameras back to us. I mean, he would just be that type of guy. But I mean, I distinctly remember a story where it's almost I wouldn't call it a confrontation. But, you know, Richie is like telling a guy that, hey, man, we need to do things this way. And they were having a, a disagreement of sorts. And the bigger, stronger uh, man kind of relented to, to Richard's will a little bit because 
he was such a natural leader, so much charisma that, like I said, I remember him going um, to a prospect event and uh, he basically, we called him uh, when he came to Georgia, he was kind of like the lead recruiter for Kirby uh, between the lines. And, uh, and I guess in the trenches, I mean, he would go talk to guys and tell them, you got to come play with me at Georgia. We're going to do big things. And um, I mean, I remember him walking into the room and I want you to picture that maybe the 10 or 15 best players in Georgia in this room. And Richard's just walking up to him saying, dog, dog, you're going to be a dog. You don't know it yet. I'm going to make you a dog. And literally all those guys, I think, I think it was like 12 out of 17 guys went and joined him at Georgia. Um, wow. That's how, that's how powerful his presence is. Well, he, okay. So we'll, let's talk about his time at Georgia. His first year, you know, it's true freshman, doesn't play a ton. I think 164 snaps is what I've calculated and what I've kind of confirmed with pro football focus. But the next two years, he takes off. He has his best grades as a player through, through their grading metrics uh, pr- very productive, you know, uh, a couple seasons of 64, 46 tackles. And I, I think he has five interceptions over that span. So his time is his sophomore, junior year kind of talked to me about, was there really big high after his freshman year where he starts to sprinkle in some games, was there big hype for that, that sophomore junior year? And, and did he, did, was he meeting what everybody thought he would? I mean, I think he was, I'm not sure if he won any all sec awards, but I think he did his senior year, but you know, the, the, the years leading, I mean, those are the two meat years. So like, tell me what he was doing that was making him an effective part of that Georgia secondary. Yeah. So Georgia's, uh, Georgia's defense is quite complicated. I think when uh, Richard got there, uh, Mel Tucker was the defensive coordinator. He'd been at Alabama. He'd been in the NFL, been a defensive coordinator, I think at two spots in the NFL. And Georgia's defense is one that's kind of designed for freshmen not to get it. Like they can maybe, think it or maybe they can spit it back into a coach on the board but then it's another thing to play fast and play free with all the checks and all the adjustments they have to do and it's just not designed for a a young guy to come in now Richard's first year at Georgia uh, Georgia went and played for the national title they came that second and 26 the Tua Tonga Valoa play away Mm -hmm. from the national title and Richard was basically a, a special teams player a reserve player and ahead of him were like you know, third and fourth year seniors that were not the athletes or the football players that uh, Richard was, but they, they just knew it. They, they'd had the game reps and then they, they just knew how to play college football a little bit better than Richard did. And their bodies were bigger, were bigger, more developed. Um, so Georgia fans kind of understood that first year, his second year um, he, he really, you know, took flight, and took wings. I think the, the main thing I, I think most people will probably touch upon a very uh, well-read or a thinking man's, uh, Cleveland Browns fan is they'll realize that um, really when before Richard had the motorcycle accident after the Kentucky game, he was probably trending hard for all SEC and all American status. Uh, he was making plays everywhere. Uh, he was erasing things. There's so many plays in his senior and junior year where you, you watch him and the way he tracks the ball and the way he was, you know, watches a reverse go one way and then flows backside and makes the play. Um, everybody's wondering, you know, what's the fit LeCount will have? Will he, is he big enough to be an NFL free or a strong safety? Is he, is he more of one of those guys when the nickel personnel comes out? Is he a potential star? Uh, I, I, th- I think, you know, I, there's a lot of terms for the star or the hybrid or the slot corner or whatever, but yeah. he's just a playmaker, man. And he's a guy that um, you see him, he's an energy guy. Another thing that a guy that he'll make a play and then everybody else will get jacked up around it. 
Um, you know, Rich, Richie kind of evolved a lot around Georgia and there was a maturity thing. I know the first year, uh, the first year, um, he was at Georgia playing a lot. He would, he would take the field with a big bat and he would call it his hit stick. And it was almost like he was trying to channel some of the former Georgia great safeties. I know maybe names like uh, Thomas Davis was a former Georgia safety. Greg Blue, uh, was a former Georgia safety. Um, you know, the list kind of goes on and on. Very, very distinguished. You keep going about guys that, um, you know, went on it, went on and did great things in the NFL. A lot of, you know, Nick Williams was one of those safeties. Sean Williams was one of those safeties. Excuse me, not Nick Williams, but um, the young man down in the young man down there in Miami that that tr- the All Pro printer, All Pro Rashad Jones uh, mm-hmm. down in Miami. These are all safeties that played at Georgia. They were very intimidating safeties. They liked to to lay the wood and deliver a big stick. And Richie wanted to follow in with that. And it was kind of funny because I, it was kind of a mishmash of what his skill set was. I mean, he's got good ball skills. He tracks the ball in the air really well. Um, he can go up and make a play, uh, good athletic ability, overall athleticism. And I'm sure um, most of your audience has probably been informed that, you know, maybe that 40 time wasn't as sporty and as robust as all those things I'm saying all right here, but, you know, 40 is probably not the, be- the best measure of his game, but I still don't think he's back from that. When he did the testing, I don't think he was back from all those injuries. Uh, he suffered in that uh, motorcycle accident. I, he, Richard even said that he was probably about 90, 95% at the most when he did that testing. And I think a, a full-fledged, healthy Richard LeCount, probably going to time in the four sixes and, pretty, and look pretty good doing so. Uh, there's no doubt if the GPS data backs it up. And I think the NFL is turning more into more and more to that. And the way Cleveland is trying to be as analytical as possible with Paul DePodesta involved and, and how they approach testing thresholds, they wouldn't take him if they believe that. And there's no doubt that he ran faster times coming into Georgia and he didn't put on an insane amount of weight to, to change that. So I'm very comfortable in aligning with your thought process that he's a much better athlete. And the tape tells me that too, from what I've watched so far is, they tell me that too. I have a quick question for you, a little off topic, not totally, but did, was there a defensive coordinator change between 19 and 20? Uh, yeah, there was a few. So Tucker took the job uh, at Colorado, and uh, then the defense coordinator at Georgia became uh, Dan Lanning. Uh, okay. Dan Lanning was a guy that had kind of been groomed up in the Alabama system. Uh, Dan Lanning um, was actually um, – he was actually at Memphis for a time, and he was at Alabama for a time. He had a long – he had a long, pretty quick – I think the guy's 33, 34 years old and the defensive coordinator in the SEC making uh, already a million dollars right now. But, yeah, when Tucker got the job, Georgia had to promote from within to name their defensive coordinator. And they actually had co-defensive coordinators with the inside linebackers coach, Glenn Schumann, another guy who I think is only like 32 years old, um, kind of brought up in the Kirby Smart way. And both of those guys are great recruiters, great X's and O's guys. And, yeah, so to answer your question, yeah, there was a, there was a coordinator change there. The other thing with Richard is he's had to deal with um, a couple of different defensive backs coaches while he's been at Georgia as well. But the thing with Georgia, you know, Kirby Smart was was played for four years at Georgia. He was a safety at Georgia. He had 16 career interceptions. So it's kind of like Nick Saban and DBs. I mean, Kirby Smart's uh, stamp is all over the defensive backs at the University of Georgia. And if any part of the Georgia defense is going to be bullish and robust and strong. It's going to be the defensive backfield. So that's why the head coach was always taking a very personal interest in Richard's development and his progress. I mean, you know, Kirby, Kirby and Richard always talked about this in press conferences that, um, you know, we've all heard that saying in ball that, uh, 
when the coach lights you up and then when the coach is on you, that's a good thing because he sees the potential and he sees the, the yield, the down, the down the road dividend that you'll get from really tough coaching and really, really coaching a young man hard that has a lot of promise. And I think that's what Richard LeCount became at the university of Georgia. Um, I remember there was a press conference um, and this was in, in the midst of all the COVID stuff, of course, but uh, Eli Drinkwich, the Missouri coach, was talking about the difference makers on the Georgia defense. Uh, and he mentioned Jordan Davis, a guy that's a likely first rounder who came back for his senior year, who's a year younger than Richard. But they also mentioned Richard and Drinkwich referred to, to Richard as a first round type player. <clears throat> he said that Georgia, because Georgia they had the injury to both of those guys and they missed a mm -hmm. couple of games, including what was supposed to be the originally scheduled Missouri game, which got rescheduled. Um, but uh, Drinkwich was talking about the fact that his Tigers were fortunate that they had to face Georgia without a couple of first round pick type type players, and one of those was Richard LeCount. And, you know, the thing that I I just found funny, Jacob, not funny because everybody's entitled to their own their own opinions in this life. But you know, some of the the vitriol or some of the message boards or some of the tweets where they were you know popping out those uh, what I'm going to consider to be icy cold takes regarding <laughs> Richard LeCount III as the worst pick in Cleveland's draft and. I'm just going to say, knowing this young man, knowing where he comes from, knowing how he's always um, met every challenge and was up to every stage he's ever been on. Uh, if he's the worst draft pick in this draft class for Cleveland, uh, I think the Browns are going to win a lot of division titles in his career. They're excited about him, man. They're really excited about the things you have referenced there, the leadership, the way he is. I always kind of make this reference and my listeners hear it and they understand it is the thermostat versus the versus the, you know, temperature thermometer leaders, guys who can, who can lead when the room temperature is high, they can be leaders or guys who can raise that temperature of the room on their own. They have that Jarvis Landry. I think they have that. And some other guys, I think especially Miles Garrett can do that on his own, but I, they need guys like Richard. And, and what I, why I asked that defensive coordinator question is because he saw his best metrics in terms of grade out and performance when he was playing a ton of single high when he was playing that Rove center fielder where he could say he could, he could, you know, trace back and forth and, and play that single high nature. He did this last year. There was some split safety stuff. Um, you know, so we got a little dog action in the background. I'm surprised mine hasn't barked yet, but no, we had, we, he, he had more split safety snaps in 2020 than I'd ever seen on his, his number. So I think there could be something there. A guy who's a little bit more comfortable playing that center field position, um, because that's, that's what some guys like to do. And I think that's a part of what the Browns want him to do is they want a center field safety. They have guys like John Johnson, the third who can come down Grant Delpit, who can play down toward the line of scrimmage. And I think they're looking for that. So he will compete with shoulder Redwine, and Browns fans know this for that position and be able to do that in certain sub packages. So excited about that fit potentially. So his senior year, he plays, I think he, I see he only plays six games. When was the motorcycle injury there? When did that occur? It was after the Kentucky game, probably his best game as a senior. I think he had 11 or 12 tackles. I think he was the SEC defensive player of the week. He was, it was an astonishing and a really great game. The folks want to see, you know, Richard LeCount full tilt. I'd encourage them to watch a little bit of that game. And, you know, you bring up that, the thought that I think hits the mark about, you know, being a single high safety and being a, kind of that center fielder to go get ball. I think a lot of that had to do his junior year. Um, there's a guy that's now in the NFL, J.R. Reed. Uh, I think mm -hmm. he – he made the he made the the Rams as a uh, as an undrafted free agent. Played a lot of special teams, and J.R. Reed's the son of NFL great um, Jake Reed. I guess Jake would probably belong in that Hall of Very Good, but not Hall of Fame. And uh, 
all those great years he had with the Vikings. But, you know, Jr. was a player, very smart, very savvy, very intelligent player. And then you paired that guy with Richie uh, in the back of the, in the back, in the back half of the back end of the Georgia defense. They really had two guys that, you know, knew what to do, very athletic, could hit and have a lot of ball skills. I think his senior year, his last year, he was asked to do a little bit different because he was paired with Lewis Seen. Now, Lewis Seen at Georgia is another All-American uh, type defensive back. But Lewis Seen is a, uh, a, a basically a guy that just demolishes guy, an, an enforcer. I don't know if you remember. I think it's going to be uh, stained on my brain for a long time. But when Georgia played Florida uh, this past season, uh, Lewis Seen was the guy uh, basically had that train wreck with Kyle Pitts where mm. Kyle Pitts didn't play for two or three games afterward. So Lewis was a, uh, this was, that was his first year as, as a starter. And Lewis was basically just going to fly to the ball, make a lot of plays in open field and be an athletic kind of a Rover headhunter type safety. And that changed uh, maybe Richard's job description because he didn't have a, an equally talented peer. Well, I say equally talented because Lewis seems probably going to be a first or second round draft pick next year because he checks all the athletic boxes um, but maybe a less experienced player back back there with him in his junior year. And I think that changed maybe what Richie, Richie was going to do a lot on that back end. I, uh, I do recall that hit. That was, that was a big hit, man. Um, so, so listen, I usually ask people to sell me on a prospect, tell me if I was a scout, why this guy's going to make it in the league. But I would say, Jeff, you've hammered that away, man. You've done great giving us more insight than anybody I've talked to about a player. So, we could not be more appreciative up here in Cleveland, the people that listen to this thing around the world, believe it or not. I, it's, it's, it's weird to me, but the Browns have a ton of fans everywhere uh, across the seas, too. They'll be so appreciative of the insights about a player that we weren't getting anywhere else. So, Jeff, thank you big time. And I want to ask you, too, before we go, tell you had a fun little Marvin uh, a Marvin Wilson that you told me off the air. I think that I think Browns fans will enjoy that if you want to share. Yeah, so one of the things I do in my job here is I go cover all the players, the best players in the country, because a lot of those are being – recruited by the University of Georgia. And uh, I remember going to, uh, I mean, it's, it's a pristine, I just want you to imagine um, if you, if you invested, let's say you, Jacob, your, your platform and your media brand takes off and you have $500 million to give to your uh, high school alma mater and you want to come back and see what, how well that $500 million was well spent. Well, that's what Episcopal looked like uh, in the, in the greater Houston area. That's where Marvin Wilson was. Uh, he was a teammate with Walker Little, another high NFL draft pick out of Stanford in this last class. But, you know, Marvin was a guy that, um, the coaching staff there kind of referred to him, to him as their gentle giant, you know, he was, and as powerful as he was, he actually almost went to Georgia as well. He was deeply considering Georgia as well. But, um, the thing that I like to find about these young men is I believe football is what they do. It's not who they are. And uh, one of the things that Marvin liked to do off was doing off the field, uh, or I, I guess I should say down the halls at Episcopal, is he was in school choir. And, uh, you know, I wrote about it a little bit because here you have this big strapping, you know, nose man or three technique uh, defensive tackle, one of the top players in the country that was actually singing in the choir. And, you know, his head coach there had a, had a great fondness to tell me that story and kind of giggled as he said it, but it's like, yeah, I got a choir boy on my defensive line, but that just kind of shows what Marvin, how he was able to adapt to different walks of life and uh, kind of be a success in anything he put his mind to. That's fantastic stuff, man. He's Jeff Santel. He covers uh, he covers Georgia and recruiting and all. Listen, all of it, full of stories, man. He's worth your follow on Twitter. He's at Jeff Santel there. He's on Dog Nation. Fantastic stuff. I hope we can connect again. Maybe Nick Pro's 
a Hall of Fame speech or something, man, down the line, we can have a good conversation. I'm, and I'm sure the Browns will be poking around Georgia again next year, Jeff. I can't thank you enough, man. Yeah, I'm glad to see Richard, great, great guy, go up to Cleveland, go up to Believe Land, uh, play with Nick Chubb. It'd be great to have Chubb underneath his wing. Nick Chubb's mama and Richard LeCount's mama, Erica, are great friends. Um, and it's great to have – I think that's a place where Richie will come in and flourish and have a great, great pro career. Um, kind of playing for – you know, motion is the big thing with Richard. And there's very few stadiums in, in, the, in the NFL, unfortunately, that will replicate – what the passion and what the fervor, what the just I guess the, the fervor and just how mm-hmm. much people get into it, like it was in the Southeastern Conference. I think Kansas City is one of those places. I think Buffalo is one of those places. And I think Cleveland is one of those places. So I think that's a good fit because he's going to be surrounded by a fan base that when Richard plays his heart out for the Browns, I think he's going to instantly become a fan favorite. And they are hungry. They finally figured it out last year and they couldn't fit all the people in who are knocking down the gates to try to get in. So it will, it should be a really fun environment and they're excited about Richard. And so are we, Jeff. Thanks again, man. Hey man, thanks for your time. Man, that's fun stuff from Jeff. I just, I find it amazing. The culture, I didn't know any of the stuff around Raekwon McMillan and, and, and the friendship that he had with Richard and all of that stuff. There's just so much about the sec. I don't know. You know, I remember, I specifically talked to uh, to him off air about you know Trevor Lawrence and and how that all fell apart between Trevor Lawrence going to Georgia and his now offensive coordinator uh, Brian Schottenheimer and how <laughs> the weird connection there that he was the reason that ultimately Trevor didn't go to Georgia now he's his NFL offensive coordinator so many stories that Jeff knows man it's SEC football is so unique in that sense and to get a little bit of his time to talk about Richard and talk about the impact Richard had at Georgia and hopefully what he brings to Cleveland uh, is, is, like I said, that's one of my favorite interviews I've done this year, and and uh, hopefully you guys really enjoyed it, because I know I did. So let's switch now. We talk about the Browns' final selection of the draft. Not our final guy we'll talk about, but the final selection in the draft, which is pick 211, Demetric Felton. Really fun player. Haven't posted his film room. Going to get to him at some point in this upcoming week, but as a running back, wide receiver hybrid who has a, a, a bright future in the NFL, and I hope it ends up being with Cleveland, I wanted to make sure to talk uh, to somebody from the West Coast, and it was a little challenging to track down somebody with with connections to Dimitric, and I was lucky enough that LA Times uh, UCLA beat writer Ben Bolch took time for me. He's at LATBBolch on Twitter, um, short there for Los Angeles Times. Uh, worth a follow if you're into you know Pac-12 football and specifically keeping cha- keeping tabs on UCLA football. Uh, so very very kind of Ben to take time for me. I know he's busy and talk about Demetric and yeah, I'm excited to share those insights with you. Let's go there now. All right, last but certainly not least of the Browns picks at uh, 211, they took Demetric Felton who is a running back wide receiver hybrid who the Browns have talked about making a running back first and foremost because they do some fun things with that position. So I wanted to bring on uh, somebody who has written and covered this young man for for a good amount of time and 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 listen, I'm in Ohio, we're trying to reach out to California. We got the time differences. Uh, I, I was able to get a hold of Ben, who was who was kind enough to come on and share some of his insights. So, Ben, thank you for that, man. Of course, of course. Let's talk about Dimitri. Talk to me about, um, you know, covering him at UCLA, a little bit of what, what the Browns are getting with this football player in terms of what he does on the field.
Yeah, it is important to know. He's he's <laughs> the the stuff about his young age. I didn't expect that is awesome and fantastic insight. I'm sure our fans here will appreciate and and what we're interested in too. Particularly, like you mentioned, his soft spoken nature is he is he like a? I ask this question to everybody who comes on. Kind of who he is in the locker room is like he is he was he viewed as a team leader? Like maybe I don't know if he was a captain or not, but was he the team leader type or just sort of a lead by example type? Because you know the Browns got a whole bunch of different talents that, that do it a bunch of different ways. So I'm kind of curious as as to how he interacted with his teammates, whether they viewed him as a leader or just sometimes it's okay to just be a guy who does everything right and everyone follows that way. That's awesome. That's awesome, especially because you know the Browns. The Browns have enough guys in their in their overall room and their overall locker room who I think are quite vocal. But the running back room with Nick Chubb and, and Kareem Hunt are two guys who I don't think are always the most vocal. Kareem's a little more vocal. Nick is the super quiet guy, so I think he'll fit in really interestingly with him there. I asked this question, Ben. It's a fun one. I think at the end for sort of. He's a he's a sixth round pick, and you know I think it's going to be a challenge anytime you're a sixth round pick to to make a roster. So if a scout kind of came up to you Ben and said, "How does Demetric Felton make his mark in the NFL?" and for you kind of analyzing what you think he ultimately does to leave an impression and make a roster, whether in Cleveland or eventually somewhere else, hopefully in Cleveland for the long term, like what's his selling point as a player that's going to have him sticking around uh, the league for a long time?
Well, the Browns are excited to have him. They had a young man named Duke Johnson who played for them recently who did a little bit of this hybrid stuff, and they, they like Kareem Hunt, and they like the skill set he brings, and I see some similar things with Demetric. So uh, I think universally it's going to work for both sides. I think he has an interesting uh, an interesting opportunity to seize a third running back role and down the road potentially be more than just a third running back for Cleveland as they shuffle in the next uh, sort of era of their running back position. And they like to throw to those guys, and he can do a little bit of that, as you've said. So this has been greatly insightful, Ben. I, I could not thank you more for taking time for us. And, and hopefully someday when he's an all-pro down the line, we'll have another conversation just like this one. Fantastic stuff. Thanks again. And one last thanks to Ben for joining us. That's uh, uh, on His schedule is not easy to do, and I appreciate him taking some time because we should be excited for Demetric, and I think... He's going to be a fun player in Cleveland. Last but not least, I did want to talk about Marvin Wilson. I know he is not a drafted player, but he's so interesting because of what happened his final year and his first-round mock uh, talent before the season to all of a sudden being undrafted, an undraftable player, and in Cleveland committing some serious money to him to show him how much they were interested in bringing his services to Cleveland. So I thought it'd be really worth everybody kind of getting a um you know an insight into what happened and that's why i brought on ira shuffle ira is uh, is at warchant.com the managing editor there he's got some really great great insight into the things that were happening around florida state's program the new hire uh the, the coach and and uh and and how marvin handled it and the disconnect between him and the coaching staff the injury and and all of it and all of the all of the tension that was going on in the world at the time before the season so it's it I think it's all invaluable here to to understand a little bit more about Marvin Wilson so he could potentially be a long-term part of the Browns and his story not just his story of his senior year but kind of who he is as a player as a person I find to be really really interesting stuff so a huge thanks to Ira he is at Ira Shuffle on Twitter SC H-O-F-F-E-L, and I hope I said his name right. He told me a few days back when we interviewed, but uh, nonetheless, he would forgive me if I messed up. But anyway, let's get over to Ira right now for some insights on Marvin. Okay, Ira, we're pumped to talk about Marvin Wilson. The Browns invested a lot of money in an undrafted free agent. They did it last year with a young man named A.J. Green out of Oklahoma State. They did it again uh, now with, with Marvin Wilson. And it's not a secret name. We do these things on our site. I recall, you know, these, we have a guy named Brown's mock draft who does them a year in advance. And when we were doing them at the end of 2019, Marvin heads back and we're like, this is a first or second round guy. And the Browns are going to be interested in defensive tackles. They cut Sheldon Richardson. This is a guy we got our eye on. It doesn't come to fruition. So in the best concise way, maybe you could go 30 minutes on this topic, but in the best way you can kind of tell me what happened between 2019's domination, 2018 and 2019's domination in terms of the metrics, and then what happens in 2020? Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, I think, we, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot more questions than answers, but I could give you at least my understanding of what all happened, and then we could try to piece it together. But but there's some mysteries involved as well. But, um, yeah, you know, he uh, when he came, when he decided to come back for his senior season, I mean, Florida State's fan base was elated. I mean, this is a guy who not only – was a really good player. I mean, he was a all ACC first team guy his junior year. Uh, some people gave him all all American mention. Coming into a senior season, he was an all American, and um, so to get him to come back. And at that point in time, at the end of his junior year, he was not only you know probably their best defensive player, but he also 
was a real fan favorite. Like he did something um, late that season. He broke his hand late in that in 2019 season. Couldn't play the last couple games. And when they went to Boston College, they actually went to Boston College and pulled off the upset, one up there. When they came back down to – this was after Willie Taggart was fired and his his position coach, Odell Higgins, had been named the interim head coach. Uh, Marvin didn't make the trip because he has a broken hand. The team gets back into Tallahassee like in the middle of the night, like three in the morning, and Marvin met the team in the parking lot of the football stadium to congratulate them on winning the game without him and after everything that happened with the coaching change and everything – so at that point, I mean, he could not have been a more popular player, and he was, you know, probably their best player. And then when he said he was coming back for his senior year, people were over the moon excited about it. Um, but then, yeah, to your point, what happens over the next um, eight to ten to twelve months is is a little bit of a mystery. And the mystery part is, you know, in the in that part of the reason he said he came back was he wanted to uh, get his degree. He felt like he owed that to his mother. He said he wanted to. He's very close with his mother. She's a very strong person. And uh, I think he was single parent family. And so he said he wanted to get his degree for his mom. He also, you know, he said he was given a first round draft projection. I'm not, you know, there's no way to verify that, but, you know, ostensibly he was trying to improve his draft draft status. Um, The only, the only like concern at all in the spring, you know, he had a new coaching staff. So he went from Willie Taggart and that staff, which was, you know, he came in under, under Jimbo Fisher, but then Willie Taggart staff was kind of a, Looser operation. It was kind of a player run. You know, Willie Taggart gave the players a lot of uh, freedom. It was not necessarily a big taskmaster in terms of practices and workouts. So then you switch to Mike Norvell, who's probably a little bit more like Jimbo in the in terms of the demands. And I don't know what happened there. I've never heard that there was a specific issue, but I do know when we went, we were there was media access at one of their offseason workouts, and Marvin was wearing an orange jersey, mm-hmm. which they give different colors for different things and orange is not good. Um, it's, it's, it's the, the color you don't want to be wearing. I heard it was a non football related thing. It was maybe just not showing up for something. Um, but that was probably the first sign that, Hey, what's going on here? You know, this is, um, that's not a great start to your tenure under this new staff. And then everything gets shut down in March for COVID and players are on their own basically for five, you know, three or four, three or four months. And so when he came back into camp for preseason there were people that said they thought he looked heavy i don't know to me he's a 300 pound dude i don't know if, i never felt that way but some people felt like maybe he came back not in the best shape um that would seem weird if you came back for one year for the draft and, and everything else it would seem weird for that but then the other thing happened obviously which i'm sure you heard about was the in uh in the summer when when all the racial unrest and he called out mike norvell for uh, misspeaking and making a comment about meeting with every player to talk about uh, racial injustice and inequality and police brutality. He actually hadn't, he had sent a group tech me- text message. And um, so Marvin called him out on Twitter and said it was a lie and said the team was going to boycott practice. So it, that was like, it was just such a huge event because it was Marvin Wilson, you know, for the first three years, the guy was, everybody loved him. Not only was he a really good player, but he, you know, everybody loved him as a leader, as a, you know, he, he was the guy that went to represent the team at ACC kickoff. I think even before his junior year, um, just kind of the face of the the team. And so it called into question. I remember at the time, some people wondered, shoot, Mike Norvell might get fired over this because, you know, if he's lost Marvin Wilson, he may have lost the whole team. Well, then it turned out, you know, they, they met that morning and they kind of smoothed it over. Um, 
internally. And, you know, Mike Norvell apologized for misspeaking. He explained that he, he just, he did, he used a, some poor word choice. He didn't mean to imply he'd spoken to everyone individually. Um, but regardless, he apologized. Marvin, the team was back at practice that next day. I mean, not, it was kind of a blip on the radar to a degree, but I think there was a, that definitely turned a lot of people, you know, kind of in the fan base against him. But I, it also was a red flag, I think, for some NFL teams because, you know, he's calling out his head coach without even checking with him first. I think that's the, and Marvin, before the pro day, before his pro day, he said that every team he talked to at the senior bowl and since asked him about that situation and how he handled it. And he said, he, you know, he told them all he, he should have handled it differently. Uh, he should have at least, you know, reached out to Coach Norvell. He should have reached out to Odell Higgins, his position coach. Instead, he just went straight to social media at the middle of the night. So it it lingered on social media for six, seven, eight hours until Norvell saw it the next morning. So um, that that was kind of like just a it was just kind of a the first sign, real real public sign that that things weren't good. And then his play on the field was 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 okay the first few games. It just wasn't what it was before. It wasn't what everybody expected. Everybody expected. His junior year, his first team, all ACC, comes back for a senior year. Man, he's going to be dominant, and he wasn't dominant. He had a few nice plays, um, some plays here and there, and then the defense was not good as a whole. So I think people kind of lumped him into that and then calling out his coach. And so all of a sudden, like people kind of start getting real negative towards him, and then he ends up injuring his knee and uh, opting out for the rest of the season. So it's kind of a just a crazy, from a Florida State perspective, I don't know if I've ever seen a situation where a player goes from super fan favorite for three years to kind of almost like a pariah in some people's minds and then undrafted after being a guy that everybody thought was going to be a first or second round pick. So it, like I said, it could be a great 30 for 30 at some point, uh, just what transpired over those 12 months. Well, those are great insights, man. I mean, there's a lot of things there. I don't think Browns fans understand. I think that we had seen it publicly. Uh, we had seen some of the things catch, catch the airwaves up our way on social media and things like that. But uh, there, there's not a, you know, at least from my perspective, I, I didn't know the total fallout of of the player and the coach, and that can happen. You know, when there's these are really heated public debates for older folks, let alone a you know a 20, 21, 22 year old trying to have conversations with people that are tough. So it's um it's unfortunate. Well, more, yeah, go one ahead. more thing to add. Sorry to interrupt you, but one thing I, I didn't think of, but I did want to mention because I think this gives you a little insight into where Marvin's coming from. It was, it was, you know, man, it was right in the heat of everything. I mean, it was a very emotional time. And that night, I'm 99% positive of this. I'm 100% positive of this, actually. So bef- that same evening, the university had a open, like a town hall. And I've never even written this because it, we kind of moved on and it didn't go too deep into this at the time. But um, that night, they had a town hall in the university athletic department. And it was an opportunity for the, the student athletes um, to come. And, and I think it was all via zoom. Um, but you know, it was open to all 500 student athletes. Uh, and the administrators came on and they were going to answer questions about, you know, what are, what is, what is the, what is the athletic department going to do? What are, what there was a feeling among student athletes at FSU. And I think at a lot of schools, you know, okay. Yeah. You're putting out these graphics that support, um, you know, racial justice or, or an end of police brutality or profiling, but what are you doing? You know, you're just putting out these graphics, but what are you actually yeah. doing? So they had this t- town hall open forum where the players could ask those questions of the administrators and, and it got heated. 
and it was very emotional. I wasn't on it, but I've heard from several people who were on it. It got heated. A lot of the student athletes were asking hard questions and they didn't want to hear just, you know, platitudes. They wanted to hear that you're doing something. What are you actually going to do? And so that was that evening. And I think everybody was really emotional. And then that night, uh, the story came out from the athletic and they quoted Norvell as saying he met with every single player. And I think that's what was the, oh. lit the match for, for Marvin Wilson. So in his defense, I mean, again, I think he knows he shouldn't have done it. He should have called somebody. Um, he certainly shouldn't have spoken for the team because he didn't have the right to say, we're all not going to practice. I mean, that yeah. wasn't, he, you know, he hadn't taken a poll. Um, but, but it, um, but I do think that that's what led up to it. Cause I said, you know, for the other four years here, he was, you know, never, never, nobody had a problem. And in fact, at the end of his senior season, after he shut things down when he had the knee surgery and he shut things down, he actually, they kept him at practice. You know, there are two high profile players at the end of the year, both opted out late in the year due to injuries, him and Tamari and Terry, the wide receiver. And Tamari and Terry did not have the opportunity to hang around the team after he had his surgery and shut things down. Like he was separated from the team. He was no longer with the program. Marvin, they kept in the program. He would actually go to practices and they would use him to kind of talk to players, encourage players. Um, you know, they kept him still around the team. So again, I think that speaks to, you know, at least internally, they felt good about things, even though uh, his season didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. Well, sometimes in these situations, and that's another, you know, great piece of insight into why that maybe blew up is like, he needs a fresh start. He, he maybe ran into a coaching staff and you do this in the recruiting process where you get, you get to meet coaching staffs and you don't fit with them. Maybe just things that you don't, you know, you don't, right. people don't always see eye to eye on how, how to handle certain things. And when you get a coach that comes in, especially when you're an established player like Marvin, maybe Norvell wants to do things that everyone's on a level playing field and every roster spot is open for competition. And, and it's just tough. It just, sometimes things don't work out perfectly and beautifully when a new staff comes in. So the hope from Cleveland's perspective is that they get a young man energized to do those things, prove himself, you know, get into the right situation. That's like the senior bowl and people are they talk about performance at the senior bowl. And it's like, you know, there's still some lingering, lingering injury things and he hadn't suited up for a while and he had opted out. So you can't take those things as like concrete evidence that the guy can't play. I think he can play like, there's, there's not a doubt in my mind that there's an NFL player in there. I think you would probably agree with me. And I think Cleveland's banking on the fact that, hey, we get this young man who can be really hungry for his first opportunity away from Florida State. Maybe there's something here that ignites him. So tell tell Browns fans kind of what you know about him when he is playing well. What does he do well as a, an interior disruptor? Yeah, I mean, he's very disruptive. Um, he, you know, he was at least, you know, <laughs> the first three years of his career. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a guy that uh, very um, – there's questions about his lower body uh, because, you know, he's kind of knock kneed a little bit. So I think there's some questions about whether or not he's going to have issues eventually with his knees. And they did have an issue with his knee. Um, so that's something I think that probably some teams might've been concerned about. Um, but I'm sure the Browns did their own you know, physicals and, and felt fine about it. But, um, but he's the guy that uh, he's got really good quickness for his size. Uh, he uses his hands. Well, um, he can be really um, physical. You know, he can be kind of nasty. Um, inside, you know, you'll see that physicality from him. Um, the, you know, from a concern standpoint, I think with a lot of defensive tackles and, and certainly the case, you know, for Florida state when they're, when they were not having success, you know, people focus on the plays where, you know, maybe a guy takes a play off or, you know, his initial move doesn't work and he kind of just engages and doesn't really fight. And then the play gets extended and then people start that's, you know, the, the, the era we're in now is every play gets, 
you know, everybody at home is stopping the frame and, or, or, or isolating on a guy and, and putting it on Twitter. And there's some plays like that where it doesn't look like he's giving good effort. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, there's a lot of circumstances that could explain that one big one being the fact that this team, you know, what they've gone through. I mean, you know, Mike Norvell was his third head coach. Uh, you know, he came in under Jimbo Fisher. Then they go to Willie Taggart. That was a disaster. Then he comes back, stays for Mike Norvell. And like you said, maybe the connection wasn't there. Maybe, um, maybe he was regretting his choice. And then if he's, you know, got some ailing, uh, maybe some, he's got some pain with his knee, maybe that all plays into it. But when he's right, you know, which he was, you know, as a sophomore and junior, yeah, man, he's very disruptive. Um, it got, got a bit of a nasty streak and, and explosive. And, and, uh, as a guy that would, would play with great effort. I mean, he, a couple of the plays he had this season, which were, you know, he did block a couple of kicks this year and they're, you know, they're really a lot of effort. I mean, the, he blocked a punt, which is kind of crazy at his size. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they just didn't really account for him. And he, I mean, he just gave great effort and that's a play. A lot of times you wouldn't expect maybe a senior defensive tackle to make that effort on that play. So he's got to can play with great effort. Um, but I think the disappointing part was, you know, his senior year, it just, you know, for whatever reason, it just kind of fell apart. I, and I, and I, I don't know why that is. Um, I, you know, it's hard to explain, but yeah, if you go back and watch the sophomore and junior tape, you, you definitely think he's a, a guy that would be a big help. So tell me this, I'll ask you from a scout's perspective, like what about Marvin is, is, is going to, to keep him around the NFL for a while. Do you think it's, the type of personality, like how he how he can be disruptive inside, or or is it going to be a bigger challenge for him than people think? Because a lot of people, I would consider him the money they invested in him to be a part of this roster essentially. But but do you see it going that smoothly, or do you think there there is potential for uh, this twenty twenty version of him being the, the the realistic version? I you know if I had to put money on it, I would say I think he's got some time in the NFL in him. I think he's an NFL player. Um, and I really think he, I think if, if, if it was only the play on the field this past season, I think, you know, my guess is he still gets drafted. You know, they'll say, okay, he was banged up. It didn't go well. Or if it was the off the field thing, but I think it was a combination of those things. I think that really is what kind of hurt him. And, um, that I, I think the off the field stuff is not going to be a concern. You know, if it was ever going to happen again, I do think it was a confluence of events that led to it, you know, him calling out his coach. I don't think that's something that's going to happen at the NFL level. Um, I think even, even if he, um, it, even if he felt like he was that kind of person that, that would, would be willing to do that. I think he's learned from this experience that that's not a smart thing to do. So I don't think you're going to see a, a, a hiccup out of him in terms of anything else um, besides what he does on the field. And I think he's good enough to, to, to play in the NFL. So I think he'll play. Um, my biggest concern long-term, and I think, you know, he can be a guy that, um, you know, Florida State's produced, I can think of several defensive tackles over the last 10, 15 years that went on and played three, five, six, seven more years in the NFL that were not as talented as Marvin Wilson. Um, so I think he can do it. The, I think the biggest question for me is, you know, the lower body. I do wonder about the knees just because he has had some problems and he, he is kind of, you know, uh, kind of a little bit bow-legged, which, you know, I know some teams are, you know, pro sports are, are going to be concerned about, but if he can stay healthy, yeah, I think he's definitely a guy that would, would be a contributor at the NFL level. 
Well, this has been great. Our, a lot of insights that, that people I'm sure have heard about, but didn't know the, the intricate details as you were able to share with us. So we are greatly appreciative, man. And, and uh, we will be following your work because I'm sure we won't be, uh, he won't be the last Florida state guy to come up to Cleveland. So we appreciate all your insights, my friend. Sounds good, man. Good luck with everything and uh, appreciate it. Okay. If you're an avid listener to this podcast, you know that this is way longer than I traditionally go, but it's, it, this is one of my favorite pods of the year again. So I, I don't mind making this a little bit longer and I time code these things so you can jump to whatever section you want to hear about whatever player you want to hear. So uh, again, uh, thank you to everybody who took time to be interviewed, uh, to, to give insights on these players. If you enjoy this pod, you want more of these types of things, let me know on Twitter. Reach out to me. Tell me you enjoy these. If you think they're stupid, I'm okay with that comment too. But I, I think it's interesting to learn more about these players that we are going to spend our Sundays watching, investing in, and pulling for. And hopefully you view it the same way I did and and took something from them. Go back and listen to part one about the Browns' first four selections if you did not. I appreciate you joining me for round two. Big week at the OBR. More content coming. Check out our YouTube channel. Subscribe to that. Subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It's always greatly, greatly appreciated. We'll be back on the YouTube channel tonight doing a uh, another live pod stream. We had to rearrange this entire office I'm in. We painted at a new desk. All of that stuff couldn't stream tonight. But hopefully this podcast makes up for an, uh, a live stream not being available last night. We'll be back on Monday night. Thanks for joining us, guys. I appreciate all of your support. We're going to hit like 50,000 downloads this month is what we're trending towards, which is mind-blowing to me, converting this thing to a, a daily pod. And, and your support and downloads and listens and all of that are, are cherished. They mean the world to me. So I appreciate you again. And uh, have a great Monday. Have a great Monday or whenever you listen to this. Have a great day on whatever day it is you listen to this. And until we chat next time, go Browns. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.